I doubt it. And I wonder, how often does that phrase or some variation of that phrase pass through your mind? I doubt it. I frequently get emails telling me that I've won a European lottery. I get emails that contain the latest version of some new urban legend that uh, somebody just can't wait to share. There are letters in my mailbox telling me if I would just buy their product or work their system, that my life would be better in just marvelous, amazing ways. I guess I doubt it. But you know, it's not just this kind of stuff. Actually, we disbelieve things all the time. And we do it for lots of different reasons. We might be so overwhelmed by some good news, or maybe some bad news, that we just can't take it all in, and we find ourselves saying, I just can't believe it. Or maybe it's, it's just too good to be true. Or when there are things that just don't seem to fit, or are in tension with things that we also believe to be true. We can find ourselves kind of caught somewhere in between those things, with unanswered questions, not exactly sure what we should believe. And at still other times, maybe because we have been taken in, or we have been burned maybe just one too many times, or because of messages that we have internalized that play over and over again in our head, like old tapes or old digital files. We might lack the confidence, and we just don't want to risk believing again. And so we get caught between our longing to embrace what seems like it might be too good to be true and our desire to protect ourselves from getting hurt in case it actually is, which is only that much more complicated when it seems like there are pieces of the puzzle that just don't seem to fit together right or pieces of the puzzle that may be missing altogether. Believing is not always easy. And very rarely are our doubts something that we would choose. In fact, in most cases, we would gladly give them away if we could. And yet, somewhat ironically, there are also lots of things we have absolutely no trouble believing at all. There are people that I neither see nor know that I depend upon every day to make sure that I have electricity and I have adequate supplies of fresh water and that there will be food there in the store when I go there to buy groceries. I have no problem depending and believing on those people at all. There are also people that I do know and trust on a more personal level, family and friends, perhaps colleagues, that I also depend upon in other ways. And that's not to say that there are not sometimes problems, both among the people that I don't know and among the people that I do. Some of them pretty significant problems. But overall, when it comes to even those things, I think most of us are believers. All of which to say that this whole thing about believing and disbelieving is a very real, normal, expected, and maybe in some ways even necessary part of our lives. It's all just part of the deal. Where we often struggle, though, is in those places where believing and disbelieving somehow get superimposed over on top of each other's, or they, they bleed together into each other in ways that we find ourselves worrying that maybe we're doubting what we should believe or believing what we should doubt.
sometimes feeling like we're standing in two places at the same time, not quite sure how you take these two pieces and fit them together, especially when the pieces just don't seem to want to fit. You know, for the past several weeks now, we've been looking at Jesus interacting with people, people who are struggling to find a way to put these puzzle pieces together in a world that had fallen apart for them, people who are having to find a way to rethink everything they believed. We noticed incidents that led up to the cross, Jesus interacting with numbers of different people as they prepared for that afternoon as he was hanging on the cross. We talked about his silence over the Sabbath of the Easter weekend. Last week, we noticed his interaction with Mary on the resurrection morning and how the other disciples were involved in what was happening. And all through the series we've been involved with for the last several weeks, we've been noticing that the truth that emerges in the midst of all of this is not something you can reduce down to disembodied information, but is something that is embodied in Jesus and the way he interacts with people. It's in watching that that we glimpse what the truth is. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is invite you to consider one more story one more scene, one that takes place just a week after the resurrection. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to follow along, I'd like to invite you to do that. If you didn't bring one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If not, I think we'll have words on the screen here. But I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 20, where we find this next incident we want to notice. And the story begins with verse 24. Now, Thomas, now, Thomas, well, of course, in a sermon about doubt and disbelief, you would expect Thomas, wouldn't you? And curiously, why I don't think there really is any intended significance to this, I found it interesting that the very next two words tell us that Thomas was also called Didymus, or the twin. I found that almost amusing. Those of you who have, are twins or have grown up with twins, can probably relate to what that experience might be like. I, I wonder how many times people looked at Thomas and said, so which one are you anyway? Which struck me as oddly appropriate for this story because during those times when I'm struggling with doubt and perhaps when you are too, I mean, don't we have those times when we look in the mirror and we find ourselves saying, so which one are you anyway? But more significant than Thomas called Didymus here, I think, is the very next phrase in the verse. Listen to what it says. Thomas called Didymus, and then the verse goes on to say, one of the twelve. And I think that is a very powerful phrase in this story. It's powerful for a couple of reasons. One is that it reminds us of the fact that just because he is struggling with doubt, just because he doesn't know quite what to do, it is not an indication that he no longer belongs there. It's not an indication that he is still not, or that he is no longer one of them. In fact, even though the story lands Thomas with the title, Doubting Thomas, and what he's become famous for, this was hardly an experience that was unique to Thomas. You'll remember from the account of the story that, uh, or the resurrection story that Luke and Mark both give, when the women first came to the disciples with the news of Jesus' resurrection that morning, every one of them doubted. None of them believed them. 
nor did they believe the other two disciples who encountered Jesus that afternoon on the walk to Emmaus. They made the journey all the way back from Emmaus just to tell them, and they didn't believe it either. This was not just Thomas's issue. This was something that they all shared, something they all struggled with, something they all just didn't know what to do with as they tried to take those pieces and make them fit after the events of that weekend. And it wasn't until Jesus showed up later that afternoon, on the afternoon of the resurrection, that they realized that the picture they had been working with was coming off the lid of the wrong box. And they finally realized what Jesus was telling them was very different than what they had ever anticipated. It made all the difference in the world. And so with this clearer picture to work from now, the individual puzzle pieces were beginning to make a little more sense to the disciples. They knew now, they had a sense at least, of where they were going. Which raises the question then, why was it a week later that we still find Thomas in such a different place than the other disciples? Well, we return to verse 24 and it tells us exactly why. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. It was as simple as that. Thomas had not been there. So where was Thomas the week before? Well, we don't have a clue. Scripture simply notes, without comment or explanation, that Thomas was not there. It is interesting to me, though, that one of the ways that we sometimes respond when we're struggling with doubt or uncertainty or with some kind of a crisis that's going on in our lives is to tend to isolate. Sometimes we feel like we need to withdraw or pull back. Sometimes we just don't feel like showing up. And even if we do, we might just pretend like everything's just fine anyway, in which case, while it looks like we're showing up, we're not there at all. It's easy to forget in times like that that we're all on the same journey and that it's when the path seems the most difficult that we need good traveling companions the most. So whatever the reasons were, Thomas was not there. But that doesn't mean Thomas hadn't heard about it. In fact, we find in verse 25, he knew quite a bit. Listen to what it says. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Now you've got to wonder what Thomas must have been thinking at this point. First there were the women. Then you've got these two guys from Emmaus. And now the rest of the disciples. At the very least, whether he was inclined to believe them or not, I mean, Thomas at this stage of the game must have felt like kind of the odd guy out. Why didn't he have any kind of first-hand knowledge of what's happening? And, and so Thomas does what many of us do when we find ourselves struggling with doubt. Surrounded with uh, what are now multiple personal accounts of people having seen the risen Jesus, which is only complicated by his own feelings of loss, having just lost not only his best friend, but his whole way of thinking about life, and how his head and the conventional wisdom of his day must have been telling him that crucified people do not come back to life again. But then there was Lazarus who wasn't supposed to come back to life again either. And so you could just see the turmoil going on through Thomas's brain here. 
And you can almost hear him say, I can't deal with this. Notice what he does say. Verse 24 continues. He, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And it's not hard to understand why Thomas would be where he was. So in an attempt to get a handle on all of this stuff, Thomas does what many in the modern world do. You try to shrink the problem down to something you can manage. First, you depersonalize the situation. You get rid of all this relational testimonial stuff, and you make this an object of study. That's your first step. Second, you assume that the only things you can really know for sure are things you can test, verify, and measure. Just the hard physical facts. That, we decide, is what will be convincing. And you know, there is something pretty remarkably assuring about the idea that we might be able to actually shrink reality down to something we can manage. That somehow we can manipulate, control, contain, measure, figure it all out. Makes us feel secure. And so, a week goes by. Time passes. It's very intriguing to me that there was no fast resolution here for Thomas. It must have been a very long week. I wonder what they talked about during that week. And then we come to verse 26. A week later, it says, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And Thomas was with them. And again, I think it's important we don't read over that too fast. Whatever the issues were, whatever the struggles were that Thomas may have had, notice where you find Thomas. Thomas is still there with the disciples. This was a community with room for people who still didn't have it figured out, sitting right alongside of all those who thought they had it all figured out. And then the verse continues and says, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Answers be with you. Well, at least that's what we expect and often wish Jesus would say. But that isn't really how the text reads. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, What? Peace be with you. Have you discovered yet that peace can come before the answers do? Peace can come before the answers do. Verse 27, he then said to Thomas, go ahead, put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's interesting to me that Jesus is not put off by Thomas' quest for answers. He actually invites Thomas to look at the evidence, to make inquiries, to do what would be helpful to him. As I heard somebody say recently, belief is not about kind of, you know, putting your fingers in your ears and going la, 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 while the evidence is going on all around you. So you can just block it out and just pretend that everything is the way you want it to be. Jesus is not threatened by or opposed to the pursuit of information and knowledge. There's nothing wrong with critical inquiry we probably shouldn't be threatened by them either. 
But what is very intriguing to me in all of this is both what Thomas does and does not do now in response to this. Verse 28 gives us Thomas's response. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Do you notice that what Thomas thought would be necessary to convince him is not what he finds actually persuasive when it comes right down to it? Thomas reached his conclusion not because his conditions were met and not because he decided to throw out the evidence either, but because he realizes that his idea of what he thought would be most convincing was way too limited. Suddenly, it had all become personal once again. And when Jesus showed up, Thomas recognized him. And that is what he finds convincing. Not in a way that discounted the data, not in a way that ignored the information, but rather in a way that moved beyond it, was recognition. Just like in any other personal relationship that we experience, what we generally find the most convincing and meaningful is not something you can completely reduce down to information that you gather and analyze. Relationships don't work that way. They're not like that. And neither, as quantum physics is even suggesting now, is reality. What we experience in relationship is far more complex than what we can fully explain just by empirical means. Which is why Jesus, who says, I am the truth, came to the world as a person, not simply as a set of ideas or doctrines or propositions to believe. Relationships don't require that we fully understand how each other work as if we were objects that we could dissect and study and take apart, but that we recognize each other as persons to whom we're able to respond. And that is something that actually entails far more. But it's interesting, the text doesn't stop here. Verse 29, he continues. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, one of the ways that Thomas recognized Jesus was with his eyes. But then Jesus reminds him, and he reminds us, that this is not the way that most of us recognize Jesus. In fact, one of the characteristics of almost all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus is that people generally do not recognize him by sight. They don't often know who it is that they're dealing with until they become aware that it is Jesus through some other way. Sometimes it's when they were gathered together in rooms not unlike this one. Sometimes when they were traveling together on their way to somewhere. Sometimes when they were fishing in their boats, sharing their lives, sharing their struggles, sharing their stories, being on a journey together. It's in the midst of that that they come to the realization that Jesus has indeed been in their midst and still is, even when, as it was in the case of Thomas, they are not only struggling with what they believe, but whether or not they believe at all. There are these moments of recognition 
that often come long before we have it all figured out, if we ever really have it all figured out. When we become aware that something bigger is going on, something more personal, with a capital P, is going on, those times when Jesus shows up, and if we have not limited our vision to only what we can see and verify empirically, we recognize him. And for these first followers of Jesus, these moments of recognition often seem to come as they are gathered together in the breaking of bread in an act of worship. Not at all unlike the service that we're celebrating this morning. And you know, because we live in a world where there are patterns of living and a kind of conventional wisdom that we are literally saturated with and in many ways have just kind of taken on, that tends to depersonalize us and that tends to shape us in ways that encourage us to limit our vision down to what we can just see and touch and measure as if those are the things that would be the most convincing. Kind of like the dwarves in the scene of the stable who refused to be taken in in C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, one of those in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, which if you hadn't read yet, you should have by now. So go and read the story if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's because this kind of thing has become so ingrained in our culture that it's so important that we gather together in services like this with other people who have chosen to respond to a different invitation perhaps to a bigger invitation that goes beyond all of that. Not to see less, not to ignore what we know. We need to keep thinking and we need to keep rethinking what we believe. We need to keep doing the inquiry and the research. But in the midst of it all, to be able to see more, to come further up and further in, knowing that as important as it is to understand what the what of what we believe is all about, it is in recognizing the who in the midst of it all that matters the most and which transforms. And that is where we find peace. So that even in the midst of questions that may remain, however long our week may last, we can still find ourselves saying with Thomas, my Lord and my God. You know, it's interesting that uh, John closes this account with these couple of verses here. Beginning with verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. And so it's with that in mind that I'd like to invite you this morning to enter into the sharing of this common meal, the breaking of the bread, those times when in our lives Jesus shows up in powerful ways, if we have eyes to see. Let's prepare for that now. There is a richness about knowing that what we're about to take part in has been taken part in by countless numbers of believers over the course of two millennia. The same practice, the same thing that we do together, remembering our Lord and what he's done for us, 
and what it is that's most convincing to us of all. As we prepare for that, uh, Pastor Dustin is going to uh, lead us in prayer to bless the emblems and what we're about to share together. Please bow your heads. Dear God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his body that was broken, that endured terrible torture and punishment for our sake. Thank you for his blood that was spilled on our behalf so that we can have hope for the future. I ask that you bless these emblems that we're about to partake of, that as we eat the bread and drink the juice, that we'd be reminded of the sacrifice that you made for us on Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'd like to invite you to take part in the Lord's Supper. Will the deacons come up front as we collect offering? Father in heaven, truly great is your faithfulness. We are so grateful today for the opportunity to bask in that and to be able to say together with Thomas and disciples like him for 2,000 years, my Lord and my God. Help us to live in the realization of that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 